Thank you very much. Let me ask you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel and chapter 9. We are finally coming to that point where we finish the ninth chapter, which is the one that we've stayed in the longest. Daniel and chapter 9. We will read from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Before we do that, let me quickly give you where we are, what's been happening in this particular chapter. First of all, um, the, uh, Daniel by this time is a fairly old man. He has lived through um, the Babylonian captivity. He has now been living through the captivity of the Medes and the Persians. And so every so often you speak in terms of uh, the year of Cyrus the king or the year of Darius the king. And both of those were kings in the um, kingdom of uh, the Medes and the Persians. Well, while he was there and uh, fulfilling his responsibility as a governor under the rulership of uh, those kings, uh, he specifically noted from the uh, book of Jeremiah that the desolation of uh, the people of Israel or Jerusalem specifically, was going to be uh, 70 years. And so um, a bit of calculation made him realize that this is now really around the corner. Their liberty was around the corner. And consequently, he tells us in verse 3 of this chapter that he turned his face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Well, as we noted, as we made our way through this prayer, um, it was largely a period in which he was confessing his sins, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, confessing the sins of their fathers. On and on he went. But towards the end, he then made clear what he was really asking for, and that is from verse uh, 16, I think it is, uh, all the way down to verse 19. He, he now pleads with the Lord basically that the Lord might bestow mercy upon uh, Jerusalem, upon Israel, that he might restore them. And that's really what the plea was all about, bring this desolation to an end. What we noted from verse uh, 20 down to verse 23 was that um, Gabriel was sent, the angel Gabriel, in order for him to uh, basically assure Daniel that his prayer had been heard. And so this is what we looked at last time, that ours is a prayer answering God. I know that you know, sometimes when you have a very specific request, and it's been dogging you for some time, you tend to come to the conclusion that perhaps he doesn't answer. He does answer. Uh, he sometimes answers yes. He sometimes answers no. 
sometimes answers wait, but he does answer. He's a personal being, and he relates to us. Well, in this particular case, what we are about to read is the answer that Daniel received. It's an answer that says, yes, but not yet. Yes, but not yet. There is a liberty, a freedom that they are going to experience in fulfillment to the 70 years that were uh, mentioned by uh, Nehemiah, rather Jeremiah. However, they needed to realize that uh, God had a greater plan, a plan that reaches up to the end of history, and that that immediate fulfillment of his plan was but a drop in an ocean. And it's really that which is applicable to us as well, beloved brethren. It's the fact that, yes, we have a prayer answering God, but often our prayers are up to the tip of our nose. It's this little thing that is in front of us. It's often um, a job, it's school, it's money, it's uh, marriage, it's a lot of these immediate things. And even when we are praying for spiritual things, like praying for the church, we are praying for the next meeting. Uh, this coming Saturday we have a seminar, and that's what we are praying for. We uh, are praying for the camp that's coming, uh, rather the, uh, the leadership program that is coming with Campus Outreach. We're praying, yes, it's spiritual, but it's something that is in front of us. With respect to God, he is seeing the immediate, yes, but he is seeing far beyond the immediate. And that's what we see here. And especially that his concern is always around the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we shall see it even here. This was at least five to six hundred years before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you won't miss the fact that the Father's answer to this prayer includes what's going to happen five to six hundred years later, which Daniel was not praying about. It was not on his radar. Let's quickly read then verse 24 to verse 27. This is uh, Gabriel who is speaking. Let me begin from verse 22. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. And that's the title of my sermon, as you've noticed. Oh. They've changed what is there. It is 70 weeks to atone for iniquity. 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, or rather with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes, deso makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I'm not too sure what's happened to my nose here, but uh, let's see what we can do. So that's really the message. Now, you don't need to be a genius to guess what everybody else around you must be thinking. And it is, what on earth is Gabriel saying to Daniel? Because all Daniel wanted was to be told, hey, in a few weeks' time, in a few months' time, you will be restored back to Jerusalem and so on as predicted by Jeremiah. However, it becomes evident that Gabriel has a lot more to say. And in fact, not just a lot more to say, it's difficult to even find where the answer is in the midst of the many things that Daniel has to, rather, Gabriel has to say. So how are we to understand this? Well, first of all, what tends to defeat us as we are looking at what is called apocalyptic literature is that often we want to, to figure out all the details. And so we begin with, for instance, 70 weeks are decreed. And so we begin to calculate those 70 weeks to see when they will end. It's not long before we realize that uh, that's a dead end. It's a dead end, first of all, because there actually are no weeks mentioned in these words. The original Hebrew is simply 70 sevens. So the word weak does not occur in the whole of this passage of scripture. 
even where later on it speaks of about uh, verse 26 or maybe a little earlier in verse 25 there shall be seven weeks then for 62 weeks again it's seven sevens 62 sevens and on and on so the moment you realize that you, you, you know you've got a lot of work on your hands. But more than that, it's that in apocalyptic literature, the, the word seven is rarely just seven. It's often a number of perfection or fulfillment. Often that's what it stands for. And already, one can miss that, whereas at the beginning of the chapter, where Daniel said that um, according to Jeremiah the prophet, they must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years, there it was a proper narration that was being given. When Gabriel begins speaking, he immediately launches into apocalyptic speech. And there, in apocalyptic speech, numbers signify something else. And that's why he did not bother to try and explain what the second seven is. When he says 70 sevens, is it seven days, which is the week that is put here? Is it seven weeks? Is it seven months? Is it seven years? Is it seven whatever? What is it? Well, 70 sevens is basically in apocalyptic literature speaking a lot more about the perfection of the actual perfection. Or, if I could use the phrase, the fullness of time. Finally, the fullness of time. There would be something of that being captured in the multiplication of the sevens here. And when you notice 62 sevens is a little short of the 70 sevens. In other words, just before that fullness of time this is when this is going to happen. So really, it's numbers that are meant to signify something else. It's the very nature of apocalyptic literature. And that's one reason why when we speak about the millennium and people are saying that Jesus is going to come and is going to rule for an actual 1,000 years, What's happening is that they are abandoning the nature of apocalyptic literature for a moment and then going into a literal 1,000 years. When really, in the minds of uh, the authors, it's basically 10 times 10 times 10. That's all it is. It's three tens. And again, when the, who are these? The watchtowers say that there are going to be 144,000 people in heaven. I mean, okay, that, that must have been filled long ago. 
if that was the number. Obviously, it is not. It is again simply 12 times 12 times 1,000. That's all it is in order to get us to that number. So the numbers mean something. The first 12 refers to the 12 tribes of Israel or at least under the 12 patriarchs of Israel. In other words, the entire Old Testament church. The second 12 is obviously referring to uh, the 12 apostles, but not just them, but all those that come under them. In other words, the New Testament church. And so it's really referring to both the saints of the Old and the New Testament being in heaven. So let me spare you from the very beginning of the torture of trying to pull out a calculator to start figuring out, okay, from this point now, 70 weeks is what? Or 70 periods is what? And then you start trying to calculate. Spare yourself of that. Seven stands for completion. It stands for perfection. And therefore, when it's now talking about 77s, it's basically talking about up to the extreme end. One more statement, and it will be enough to convince you. The Lord Jesus Christ used this speech. Remember when he said that, uh, the disciples said to him, how many times should I forgive my brother? And he said, 77 times 7 times. Now you have to be really someone who keeps a notebook with you to keep counting and reach 77 and then times 7 and so on. That's not what he has in mind. Again, he's using this aspect of completion, fulfillment, in other words, to the very end. Doesn't matter how many times your brother sins against you and comes back and genuinely says, I am sorry, forgive him. Stop the thought of counting. Okay, so I hope I've managed to convince you, at least up to this point, to put away your calculator, stop thinking in terms of calculations, and then start thinking in terms of, okay, what is the message that Gabriel is sharing with uh, Daniel? Which I want to repeat is very applicable to us as you are sitting here in these pews listening to me. Well, first of all, what he is essentially saying here is uh, that your people and your holy city are about to go through a, an experience of uh, redemption, an experience of uh, uh, atonement, an experience of uh, being given righteousness, an experience of um, someone coming who is the most holy one. And so we read the words, 70 weeks, or that's at least the English Standard Version, they added weeks because seven, uh, I suppose they assumed it means a week, so it's seven days. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 
What is it that is going to happen at the end of this period? We are given six things that are going to happen. Six things. Number one, it will be the finishing of transgression. In other words, uh, the sins that you have committed will finally be fully punished to put an end to sin. And how will this happen? Through an atonement for iniquity. There's going to be an atonement that will be made. And therefore, as far as your sins are concerned, and these are the sins of your people and your holy city, your people being the Israelites, your holy city being Jerusalem, which you remember earlier he was constantly mentioning. Let's quickly go to uh, verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, and he mentions Jerusalem. Your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our people, and then listen to this, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. So the Jews and the city of Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. Their sins put aside, fully punished through an atoning sacrifice. That's what's going to happen. And then positively, they will receive an everlasting righteousness. To bring in everlasting righteousness. A righteousness that can never end. A righteousness of infinite value. Now, as I'm speaking like this, I know what you're thinking. Not because I'm a prophet, but because, you know, it's obvious. And you are right in thinking the way you're thinking. Because it's obviously referring to the righteousness that Jesus Christ brought finally to not only Israel, but to God's elect people. To seal both vision and prophet. Now, sealing here refers to, again, the, the end of it. So let me try and explain. Um, normally, what you, 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 you would do in those days, in fact, we also used to do it once upon a time, before emails came, is that when you finished writing your letter, that's the more modern example, and you put it in an envelope, you sealed it. It meant you finished. It meant there's no more to write. In their days, it would be a scroll. So when one finished writing in that scroll, they would roll it up, and then they would put a seal so that it cannot be opened until it gets to the person who is supposed to then open it, or it gets to the time when it is supposed to be opened, in which case it will be put away like in a library, properly um, written over, so that people know that it is being preserved. The writing was finished. 
So in the same way, to seal both vision and prophet. In other words, a time is going to come, which is this same time, when prophecy and visions will no longer be a continuing uh, phenomena because all that was needed to be said concerning God's future plans would have consequently been said. So to seal both vision and prophet. And finally, and to anoint a most holy place. Now again, the ESV adds the word place. Actually, that word does not exist in the original. So if you've got a pen and you delete it, you're not deleting the word of God. It's just that when you're translating, you tend to want to think, is this a place or is this a person? And then, because it seems to be hanging, a most holy, and then it stops, stops a most holy. And so they put holy place. Uh, I have a bit of a difficulty with that because of the next verse. The next verse refers to an anointed one, an anointed one, and I think it's the same person being referred to in this text. In other words, and to anoint a most holy one, referring to the very one who would bring all this about, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once you read it that way, you begin to see that in one sense, it, it satisfies what Daniel is praying for. Daniel was not really saying, you know, can you tell me which day this is going to happen? You, you can read that prayer even towards the end. He's not saying, tell me which day. So that he should now say, okay, in 77 days or something, it's going to happen. No. Daniel was praying for forgiveness. Forgive. And for restoration. Having seen what was written, that it's coming, all he wanted was to ensure it happens. And it's only going to happen when God truly forgives. And so Gabriel is telling him that, in fact, forgiveness is coming. And it is coming at the right time. At the fullness of time, it is coming. Now, we can easily, therefore, apply it to us as well as Christians, because for us, what is being talked about here has actually happened. We know it. It's now 2,000 years ago when our sins were atoned for. It was 2,000 years ago when we were dressed or at least provided with a righteousness that is God's righteousness. Remember the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He was made to be seen who knew no sin, verse 21. He was made to be seen who knew no sin, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Oh, brethren, that's exactly what we're seeing here. The only difference between Daniel and me is that Daniel was being told it's going to happen. I am being told 
It has happened. God has indeed done this. And therefore, having said that to him, we can take it as well on ourselves. So instead of the Jews, we can say Christians. And instead of Jerusalem, we can speak in terms of the church. And at the end of the day, this is applicable to us. Whereas the immediate application took place shortly after this, in the days of uh, uh, Cyrus, in fact, um, the, the Jews were, were given permission to go back and start um, re repairing the walls of Jerusalem, repairing the, 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 the temple itself, and so on. They were given permission. So in a sense, there was a fulfillment of this. But friends, you reading this text today, you know that there's no way it was completely fulfilled there. There's no way. There was no eternal or everlasting righteousness that was given to the Israelites then. Prophecy continued even after that until the days of the apostles. It continued. So even there, we can say there must be a further fulfillment. However, let's still at least put ourselves in the feet of uh, Daniel for a moment. Let's at least do that. Let's at least say Daniel was satisfied. Because what was Daniel asking for? We've already said it. For pardon. That's what he was asking for. And he's being told not only that your people will be pardoned, but that they will be given an everlasting righteousness. So in that sense, he was satisfied. The only thing is, remember what I said about our prayers. God was saying to him, I'm coming to tell you, because you are beloved of mine, I'm coming to tell you that the answer I'm giving you goes far beyond what you're asking for. Far, far beyond. It goes all the way to the coming of an anointed one. Let's read very quickly verse 25 as well. Verse 25. Oh, maybe let me read verse 24 in completion. Now that I have explained it without you trying to pull out your, your calculators. 77 weeks are decreed, decreed. Okay, remember when it speaks about 70 and 7s, it's talking in terms of the perfection of perfection or the, the, the fullness of time and so on. Are decreed about your people and your holy city. And then these six things. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy. Kulibe place, the most holy. Know therefore and understand. 
Now that phrase is already what he has been telling him. Remember the way verse 23 finished. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So he's simply repeating that. Okay. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven sevens. <laughs> okay. Not seven weeks. Seven sevens. What is that again? Remember, we're talking in terms of perfection of perfection, a complete fulfillment of time. This anointed one will come. But what is interesting is this, that we're even told that he's a prince. He's a prince. In other words, he is one who is coming to rule. He's coming. At the end of such a period, he is going to come. Now, as I already said, that's going way beyond what Daniel was asking for. And knowing his story now, it goes far beyond the people of Israel being restored to the promised land. It points all the way to the coming of the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's go on. Because <clears throat> in the account, as we continue reading, it becomes evident that apart from that initial building that took place in the days of Jeremiah, I mean the days uh, of Nehemiah, there seems to be a reference to an ongoing attempt to rebuild, an ongoing attempt that is generally frustrated by ongoing trouble, ongoing trouble. And uh, we'll just quickly read that in the second part of verse 25, the second part of verse 25. It says there, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. Now remember, 62 <laughs> is simply saying falling short of 70. That's all it is saying. It's falling short of 70, and it's almost a falling short of 70 by another seven. Almost. So you can see that they're still playing with sevens. So, before the fulfillment of time, there will still be this effort at building again with squares and mort. And then it says, but in a troubled time. In a troubled time. Again, we can only look back in history. And it's the fact that after the Medes and the Persians, the people of Israel were never finally free. They actually still remained in captivity. They remained in captivity of the Greek Empire, which is largely during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the so-called 400 years of silence, 
the Apocrypha records a lot that was happening in those days. There were some very heroic characters, personalities that arose in Israel uh, that were being forced to and persecuted in order to bow to Greek gods and they wouldn't. There were wars that were taking place and so on. It's, it's general history, not just in the Apocrypha, but in history as well. General history that uh, is learned in terms of world history. Then after the Greeks, they were defeated by the Romans. And by the time Jesus was coming into <clears throat> uh, on planet Earth, it was no longer the Greek Empire, it was now the Roman Empire that was ruling the known world. Although Greek uh, culture and the Greek language was still really the basis, the foundation of so much that was taking place in the Roman world. And so by the time Jesus was coming, he would speak or listen to uh, Greek uh, but our entire New Testament, by the way, is written in Greek, despite the fact that it was being written during the period of Roman rule. But in all this period, which is prior to the final coming of this anointed one, Israel was still trying to rebuild itself. To still try never finally having that autonomy, sovereignty that it once had as a nation in its own right. Up to the time that Jesus Christ came, that's exactly what was happening. The temple was there, but a shadow of its former self, a complete shadow of its former self. So there is a possibility with hindsight that that's what is being referred to there, which would mean a lot to Daniel because it's being told, yes, you're going to be freed. Yes, there will be a period when the temple and Jerusalem are rebuilt, but that's not the end of the story. The rebuilding process is going to continue and it's going to continue in very difficult times for 62 weeks. And then, interesting, after the 62 weeks, listen to verse 26. Again, you can't miss who is the major player when it comes to that period. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, that is short of the period of complete fulfillment, the perfect of perfection, short of that, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Again, you don't need to be a genius to record that it's referring to someone dying before old age. He's cut off. 
And that's what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. He came as the anointed one. The name Christ actually simply means Messiah in the Old Testament um, uh, Jewish language. Christ being the Greek equivalent of that. And it's the, both Christ and Messiah simply mean the anointed one. That's what it means, the anointed one. So when Jesus is referred to as Jesus Christ, he's, referring, he's referred to as Jesus, the anointed one. And he is being referred to that way as one who fulfills all this Old Testament language that was saying to the people of Israel, he is coming. The being cut off is something that can also be seen from Isaiah 53. Let's just quickly go there. Isaiah 53. And by the way, <clears throat> Isaiah wrote the second half at least during captivity. During captivity. And uh, you will notice that it's basically the same language that we have here. Let me, I won't read the whole of it, but it's probably the, the, the purest and fullest explanation of Jesus Christ, Jesus' birth, life, and death, and resurrection that there ever is in the entire Old Testament. But I want us to just read beginning with verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. There it is, this aspect of being cut off. And uh, we are told in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Um, there is the aspect of him having nothing to himself, and yet dividing the spoil with the strong. There in verse 12. And therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressions. So again, he is one that is cut off. The people of Israel, for some reason, turned a blind eye to this statement. They, they, they were so longing for a deliverer that they were constantly thinking in terms of someone like David. And yes, it did say that there would be the son of David who would come and that he would be a prince, but they failed to see that there would be this suffering and death that was going to come. And here, there's no doubt that uh, that's what it is referring to. He, he had nothing to himself. He died the most that could be divided among the soldiers was just the clothes that were on his body. That's all. Beyond that, there was nothing else that you could get from him. 
he shall have nothing. Then we have a further decree there, and it is what takes place after Jesus' death and resurrection which again is related to the people of Israel. And it is the final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Look at the way it is put here. Verse 26. Second half. And the people of the prince, and that's largely referring now to the Gentiles rather than the Christians, but the Gentiles, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Desolations are decreed. It's coming. To borrow the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 and just the first two verses. Matthew 24, the first two verses. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all this? Do you not? Truly I said to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Complete destruction of the temple is coming. That's what Jesus told them. And it actually did. A time came when the Romans came around the city of Jerusalem sieged it, and when they came in, finally, they destroyed everything, including the temple. And that's being prophesied here. We are being told it shall come like a flood, a complete disaster. It took place. Well, let's quickly hurry on, because uh, I, I thought I would go through this a lot faster than this. What we are told here is that with this destruction taking place, something new opens up, especially with the anointed one who has come. Something new opens up, and it is a new covenant, not the old one. This is completely new now, which replaces the old one. And this, no doubt, again, you don't need to be a genius to know that it is referring to the closure of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, the new covenant that is sealed in the blood of Christ. The consequence of it is that there is no longer any place for the kind of sacrifices that were taking place in the temple. It's finished. Because the once-for-all sacrifice is done in the person of Jesus. Let's really read that in verse 27. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant, or 
to borrow better language from the book of Hebrews, a better covenant. That's the way the, the book of Hebrews puts it. A better covenant with many for one week. Now, I hope by now you know that that is one seven. And that at the end of the day, it's again this aspect of fulfillment, perfection, completion. Okay, so again, don't think in terms of an actual period because I'm in a covenant for one week, where would you find it? And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So again, for half of that period, he puts an end to all sacrifices and offerings, which we've just seen. It's something that he no doubt has done. Now, in a sense, you could say, hey, hang on. So the second half of the period is one in which sacrifice and offerings will come back. Again, the answer is no. Basically, he is speaking now in terms of the first period while we are here on earth, but that covenant lasts forever. It's a covenant that lasts forever. And as it lasts forever, obviously there there is neither uh, the first part of the covenant nor of the second because all things there would have been fulfilled. So he's first of all simply referring to this first half of that one week, the first half of this period under the covenant, the first half of it. And he is saying sacrifices have been abolished. He's not suggesting that when we go into the second half of it, they come back because obviously that's now completely eternal. But look at the way he puts it here. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I won't take long there, but simply the fact that the New Testament again and again speaks about an antichrist, doesn't it? An antichrist who comes and puts up a final gallant fight with the church and its savior. And finally, that antichrist is defeated around the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible does speak about it as well over and over again, and here it is captured in the very end of Gabriel's speech. Let me quickly close. I've taken almost 50 minutes. What are we learning here, brethren? First of all, yes, it is a God who answers prayer. This was an answer to Daniel's praying. And therefore, let's be like Daniel. Let's be individuals who are constantly praying about whatever issues we are in, but especially issues related to the future of the church, the prosperity of the church, the programs of the church, that the gospel enterprises might go forward.
That's basically the first thing we are learning here. The second that we learn in this is that the God who answers is a God who answers around the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the way he answers. He has one agenda in history. He hasn't got two agendas, one for Israel, then one for, for the church. Uh-uh. He's got one agenda. And it's around Jesus Christ, his person and his work. That's the agenda. Whatever answers, therefore, we are getting to our prayers, let's remember it is around the furtherance of the cause of Christ. For Daniel, it was futuristic, his coming. For us, we are between the first and the second coming. That's where we are. So there is some futuristic aspect to it. There's no doubt about it. And God, in answering our prayers, will have that in mind. It is in him, it is in him, and it is in him. But thirdly, and finally, let us realize that at the center of all history is the cross. The cross. That's at the center of all history. Imagine Daniel listening to these words. Let's face it. I don't think he understood half of what he was hearing. Hmm? He wasn't understanding half of what he was hearing. We are told that the prophets had some inkling about something that was coming. They, they didn't quite know what it was. That the Spirit of God in them was, was pointing to. They didn't understand everything. But for us, as I was saying this morning, what a privileged people we are. We're able to read this and we'll say, Daniel, what's your problem? Eh? This is straightforward. Okay, apart from the weak side. But this is straightforward. Eh? This is about Jesus. What's your problem? What a privileged people we are. But let's keep that in mind as we're pointing backwards to the Daniels that we are often in the same shoes in that we rarely make our plans thinking Christ is coming back to come and wrap up the whole of history, to destroy the Antichrist, to establish his kingdom forever. We hardly think like that. We are so carried away with the kwacha and the dollar, the uh, brick and mortar, and so on. We're so carried away with these things that, for instance, the work of evangelism tends to, to, to lie in the background. The work of missions, we've just been seeing Clement and his wife here being uh, interviewed. The work of missions, we, we hardly give it the, the, the height that it needs to be given in our minds, in our pockets, in, in our time, in, in our gifts and talents and so on. We hardly think like that. And really, brethren, we too need to repent. We too need to realize that history it's not about us. We'll soon be gone. 
It's not about the things we are praying for that are at the tip of our noses. Those things will come. They'll come and they'll go. It's about Calvary, the anointed one, the atonement for sin, the everlasting righteousness, the prince of peace. What a privileged people we are, but let's give our everything to that cause. Amen. Let's pray.